0: But something I learned creating my artwork is the emotional power that it has and how when people are stepping up to an artwork like in a museum or a gallery, they're often, you're kind of open and receptive to feeling an emotional response or some sort of takeaway from the piece. And that can often be negative too, but you're open to that. And I think in science, that element needs to be left out to some extent, but at the same time, when you're communicating to people, especially to a broad audience, I think the emotional element can be really important.
1: In 2018, I sat down with one of my best friends from graduate school, Jill Pelto, to chat about her glacial science and art and how those two things, science and art, intersect, along with why they should intersect, especially when considering matters of climate change. Today we're speaking with Jill Pelto, an earth scientist and artist, as well as a former master's student at the University of Maine. Jill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I've been at the University of Maine for seven years, and I've done a Bachelor of Arts in both earth science and studio art here, and then I just completed my master's of science in the earth and climate science program, looking at the sensitivity of the Antarctic ice sheet to warming. And during this entire time of my career at UMaine, I've been developing, I guess I would say, climate change art portfolio and working with scientists here and elsewhere to try and
1: communicate science through artwork. So how did you become involved with the earth sciences?
0: I largely became involved with earth scientists because of my dad, uh, Dr. Mori Pelto, who is a glaciologist and now works largely on alpine glaciers in Washington State that are important resources for water. And so when I was in high school, I started helping out my dad with his glacier monitoring project in Washington and working in an environment that... Um, it's so beautiful and then learning at the same time how that environment was changing and how, how that environment is important for the ecosystem and for the people inspired me to pursue the natural sciences as well and kind
1: of follow in his footsteps in part. So I know you just ran through a little bit about your academic journey, if you will, But how did you make that decision to go from, I guess, initially high school into your double major? Right. And then from your double major of art and earth sciences to just earth sciences for a master's degree. Can you just walk me through the thought process?
0: Yeah. When I first uh, came to UMaine, I was enrolled as a studio art major. And I was pretty confident that I wanted to take some sort of natural sciences as well on as another major or at least a minor I didn't know if that would be earth sciences, like my dad and also my brother, or if that would be marine sciences or wildlife, etc. And so I took classes in different departments and just realized how passionate I was about learning about the earth system and learning more about climate change as that was a topic that was becoming a lot more prevalent. And so I decided to enroll in that as a major as well. And through my career at UMaine, I also was in the Honors College program through which you can do a a thesis, undergraduate thesis project. And so that project helped me really push how I wanted to combine those two degrees and I created a thesis that was in part a written paper researching using art to communicate science from artists in the past to my own explorations. And then I also created a portfolio of a body of about 10 pieces of art that were experimenting with that communication. And in doing so, I realized I wanted to continue my experience in being involved in kind of an intellectual challenge like grad school provides. <laughs> and really, I thought of the a master's program in science as being such a, a good way to grow where you're being asked to kind of design and take on such a large project in large part on your own and then you know being guided along by your advisors and peers but kind of having that sort of challenge and undertaking was really something that I thought would help me grow a lot as a scientist and help fuel my art and I thought that was where my growth was more needed than with my art.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea of data art? And I mean that—that that I guess hopefully will pro- provide a segue towards uh, science communication and how mm-hmm. you've um, how you've developed your science communication skills. But can you first tell us a little bit about your inspiration for data art and yeah. what is data art?
0: <laughs> um. So when I was still an undergrad and trying to combine uh, my art and science degrees for my thesis, I had done uh, field work with my dad in Washington State and the glaciers in the summer of 2015, and that year in particular I felt like I was feeling and witnessing and being affected by climate change more than I personally had living in Maine ever before. Just seeing the effects of the severe drought and the forest fires, the low water in the streams, it was warm, bad for the fish, bad for the ecosystem. And seeing all those effects and having to live in them outside for a couple of weeks was a very intense experience. And so I came back in the fall of 2015 into my last semester as an undergraduate student and really wanted to create a body of artwork that depicted what I had been feeling. And so my first data art series were three watercolor paintings that kind of depicted some of those effects and so uh, i realized that the the graphical data that my dad has amassed from working on the same system of glaciers for the past um, 30 now 35 years was a really powerful way to tell that story just to see the decline of the glaciers over time and it also reminded me of the profile of a declining glacier and so that data line made me realize that incorporating Kind of simple XY data that's just telling a story of change over time, whether that change is positive or negative, is a really nice simple means of communication. And then when paired with a visual, I could more easily try and tell a story and make that story more emotional. And so that piece depicting glacier loss was then paired with a piece about salmon populations in Washington State being affected by changes in stream level and temperature, and then also by the increase in air temperature, and drought affecting the amount of forest fires in that state. And so in all of those pieces, I was using data to try and tell a story so I could combine that intellectual information with an emotional narrative and hope to kind of connect
1: at the time, like just my classmates, to what I had experienced in the the class I made those for. When you use your simple data line, and then you pair it with the effects that are related to Mm -hmm. what that data line is saying, it prompts the viewer to think a lot about the changes we're seeing. So can you give an example? Uh, The things in my head right now that I can think of are sea ice loss Mm -hmm. or decline, and then your forest fires. Can you paint with words the pictures for us?
0: Yeah. So yeah, first the sea ice piece. I have data that I think spans a couple decades of sea ice decline in the Arctic and thinking about what that sea ice is going to particular affect. I mean, there are myriad things, so you kind of have to choose how to highlight that piece. And so you have the declining graph line of sea ice cover and underneath that graph line, I painted two Arctic foxes, which are one of the species in the Arctic that rely on sea ice for hunting and travel as do many other species. And so I have the arctic foxes kind of trapped under that data line and the way they're posed and their, their body language is supposed to make them appear like they're very cornered and they're skittish because they have nowhere to go or they don't know how to adapt to that changing environment. And above the data line, I painted the sea ice breaking up surrounded by the ocean. And so the arctic foxes are essentially trapped from that data line, kind of literally in the, in the painting from the, the sea ice environment that they're relying on. And so there's nothing around the Arctic foxes. They're just kind of trapped and then um, isolated from that environment. So that's the way I chose to depict that story at the time, kind of that story of ha- habitat degradation for that species. Another piece uh, about increasing forest fire activity, that data line was about increasing temperature over the last um, several decades that data line is pretty extreme to show the increasing average. And I was connecting that story with the amount of forest fire activity happening. Um, I was focusing on the Western United States up into Western Canada, but certainly elsewhere in the world. So underneath that data line, I have a forest that is kind of progressively going up in flames with the smoke kind of going above that line. And so the, the, the forest is that jagged kind of broken up data line as it increases, kind of making the tops of those burnt trees that are being destroyed. So that was supposed to be that kind of simple story of a, of a connection of, not like a one-to-one connection, but like a connection of change with the forest fire activity.
1: Can you just really briefly tell us about your latest piece?
0: So my most recent piece I made this spring of 2018 was increased variability in the Gulf of Maine sea surface temperatures. So the, the data depicted there was really just from the last decade or decade and a half the storyline wasn't even so wasn't just focused on the fact that the temperature has been increasing in the gulf of maine it was more that the the way the temperature pattern is acting is different than in the past and so the amount of variability year to year or seasonally is becoming a lot more extreme with the high and low temperatures and these much bigger and fast swings as um, ocean patterns have been shifting in that area So I have the the ocean temperature data line at the top of the piece, kind of at the diagonals as it increases. And on top of that, I have a fishing boat, kind of just a small, typical lobster boat that you see around Maine, kind of introducing that human element to the story. One that humans have been the cause and effect of this but also that we are in turn being affected as affecting the livelihood of those fishermen in turn who those small smaller town fishermen who aren't to blame and caught and overfishing and things and so below that data line is the water column and i depicted a number of species that have been affected in the gulf of maine and surrounding waters i have cod which have been greatly overfished and have had trouble being reintroduced and so they disappear across the image and kind of look ghost-like as they approach the right side of the image. I also depicted lobsters and I depicted clams and shrimp and so those species all have different stories and those stories are complex but my takeaway message was that any species is, is going to have trouble adapting to this amount of change and when the variability also increases that just makes it more difficult and so some might do well some won't but the story is that they're all going to be stressed in new ways that they're not used to in any body of water.
1: There seems to be a lot to unpack in a lot of your artwork, which is great. It's provoking thought. But what does the process look like when you decide to start an art piece? Like, how do you research all of these different things and then bring it all together in one piece. Can you just walk us through a little bit of what that looks like? I can
0: definitely walk you through the process. That's definitely a process that I will continue to be working on and changing because I think I'm trying to really tell the story the right way and in an effective way. And so at the beginning, I would typically, there was a topic I was really wanting to convey, something that was inspired to inform more people about. Once I thought of that topic, I would research it, try and learn at least like base level You know what is this topic about, whether it's a bad or or a good change to the environment. And once I kind of had a grasp on that and had a certain trend line that I wanted to convey, I would begin to piece together how I could tell that story. So I could be writing and sketching a lot of different ideas and thinking about that topic and creating just tons of small sketches. We call them thumbnail sketches. Just playing around with composition and the elements that you include in a piece and it's kind of like with anything you have to try out tons of ideas before you begin to get what you like the most and then talking with your peers about what they like, what communicates to them, then being informed and more ready to tell that story. The element that I want to begin to introduce that I did for my Gulf of Maine temperature variability piece was when I can and when it's especially necessary talking to those in the field that I'm making a piece about and so with the Gulf of Maine piece I talked to University of Maine professor Dr. David Townsend because he and many others have been researching this as part of their career at UMaine for a long time, and so I want to hear from the people who are researching those topics how they see the story, to learn about that from them, because that's really going to tell me how to best tell that narrative in an accurate way, and to find out if that narrative has been told well before or not by them, by the media, whoever. But just, yeah, how to effectively communicate that in the best way. So I think that element of communication and collaboration with others is really important, whether that's feedback from an audience about the piece or with the researchers
1: themselves. That sounds like a really great process, and it's really cool how much thought you put into it. Obviously, that's what makes it effective. So... You're evidently an effective communicator on campus, <laughs> um, and I know you to be also a, a really effective communicator verbally as well and in presentations. Do you have any tips about how we can grow to be more effective communicators as scientists and as people just trying to communicate truths in general? Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's something I'm, I'm learning myself, but something I learned creating my artwork is The emotional power that it has and how when people are stepping up to an artwork like in a museum or gallery, they're often, you're kind of open and receptive to feeling an emotional response or some sort of takeaway from the piece and that can often be negative too, but you're open to that and I think In science, that element needs to be left out to some extent, but at the same time, when you're communicating to people, especially to a broad audience, I think the emotional element can be really important. So to some extent, maybe incorporating that more in outreach, some way to connect um, a storyline and a narrative to people where they can relate to that storyline and how it will affect their lives or others' lives and for science communication, like when I'm giving a, a talk about my research or research that I've been involved with, for me, that is a long process of trial and error and critique where it's really important skill to try and grow at the beginning of your career, and one that I'm still definitely growing where you're getting feedback. And at the University of Maine Earth and Science Climate Department, we have to get feedback from our fellow students and professors on the talks. We all have to give talks in from the department. And that sort of engagement and learning how you describe your research and the visuals that you connect with that, how important those all are. And so to really engage in that process and try to learn. And then also to do, to do the same when you're either giving talks or writing abstracts for a conference in which you're talking to people outside your field, or you're talking to people not even in the sciences, then practicing that as well. is like how to, what words to use and what visuals to use to still make your research have a narrative, even though, yes, you're telling truths, and there's not going to be the same emotional component. So I think it's it can be a lot of work to grow that, but an important step to take, especially earlier in, early in your career. So it sounds like taking...
1: Yeah constructive criticism has been super helpful. Too.
0: Yeah, certainly. I don't think it's a skill that mo- a lot of us are natural with, so.
1: Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I find also that feedback and constructive criticism so helpful for figuring out what did and didn't work. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, could you tell me briefly what your research was about for your master's thesis Mm -hmm. and the opportunities you were able to engage in whilst at Maine Mm -hmm. um, and how it's valuable to the broader public.
0: Yeah, so I did my master's research with Dr. Brenda Hall, who um, is a paleo- Climate scientists and glacial geologist um, who works all over the world studying glacial landscapes and the, what those can tell us about those um, systems and those climates in the past. And so I worked with her for my master's for two seasons in the Antarctic in the in a mountain range called the Transantarctic Mountains that run across the continent. The focus of my research was studying the way the ice sheet responded to the major warming that occurred at the end of the last ice age. And so for a lot of the world, the major ice sheets that, you know, covered a lot of North America, a lot of Europe, etc., at the end of the ice age around 18,000 years ago, say, retreated. And in the Antarctic, that story is different. It's a more isolated system. And so I was focused more on the last 10,000 years when the ice sheet was finally responding more to the warming and then through the last 10,000 years how how what that story can tell us about the ice sheets sensitivity to the changing global temperature both air and ocean and to sea level rise and understanding those parameters is really important for understanding the stability of the ice sheet as a whole and so I was just looking at one component of it but it's an important piece in that puzzle of okay how does the ice sheet respond in the past And that
1: tells us a lot about how it might behave now or in the future. Right, which is really important for anyone on the planet to understand. Or maybe not for everyone to understand, but for especially coastal populations and global climate in general. So what specifically did you find and what methods did you use to tell a story about a place in Antarctica responding to that?
0: Yeah, so my, my field area was in in the largest embayment on the continent, the Ross Embayment. And that's just basically this large open area of ocean that's right now a big portion covered by a floating ice shelf. An ice shelf is ice that's still, um, it's very thick, but it's not grounded. So it's floating on the ocean, but is kind of attached to a continental ice mass or ice sheet that is grounded on land. And so the ice shelf is really important today for, kind of as a buffer for the ice sheet and a lot of the outlet glaciers that feed into it. And without what's present, that ice would just be able to kind of dump into the ocean and drain a lot more of its volume more quickly, having that warm ocean adjacent. So we were working on what you call the western side of the embayment, that's tricky in the Antarctic um, direction, but the western side of the embayment pretty far south along it, so, you know, closer to the south pole than to the outer edge of the continent, and working, like, along the, what we call the coast, although it was, like, adjacent to the, the ice shelf, so not technically, but the, the coast of that embayment um, at the foot of the trans mountain range that's running across the continent, and so there are a number of, of large outlet glaciers that drain the eastern side of the Antarctic ice sheet through those trans-Andarctic mountains, and then flow into the ice shelf and feed it. And so we were looking at that system and how those large outlet glaciers have changed since the last ice age. During the last ice age, they were a lot thicker than they are today. And that entire Ross embayment where the ice shelf is now, or a large portion of that embayment was filled at that time to the seafloor with the grounded ice sheet. And so the continent in general, filled the, the ice sheet on the continent, filled those large embayments, and the ice was a lot thicker. And so we were working at um, that kind of adjacent zone from where the ice shelf is now and the land and looking at how those glaciers have thinned since the last ice age. And that was telling us about how fast they thinned and at what time, which we can then compare with um, different factors such as changes in climate and in sea level rise and say, okay, what caused the, the changes to the ice sheet at that time? And how does that Fit in with the puzzle pieces we know from elsewhere on the continent. My method mm-hmm. was using um, radiocarbon dates on ancient algae. So, because the Antarctic is a polar desert, it's basically a, a refrigerator for you know some some organic material, and it basically just is you know kind of the algae is
1: almost freeze dried. It's just so cold and dry that it's preserved on the landscape. A radiocarbon date, just to back up a little bit, yeah. is a method of dating. That's applicable to organic materials, right? Past right. organic materials. Yeah,
0: okay. Correct. And you find out when that material was alive and growing because it has that atmospheric signal of carbon. So, when the glaciers were thicker, as I was describing in the past, they were higher up the mountain slopes of the transiatic mountains. And kind of that boundary between the glaciers and the mountains. There are often some semi-open areas of water, largely frozen. And even though those pond systems are largely frozen, they can still contain some life, including algae. And so we were working higher up on these slopes where the ponds used to be dammed because when the ice begins to thin down the slope of the mountains, the ponds that was damming on the mountain slope can no longer exist there. They need the ice to dam it. And so the adjacent ponds are kind of thinning down the mountain slope with the ice. And so if we work our way down a mountainside, for example, then we can find where those past ponds may have been located, and once we do, we can find algae that's basically been freeze-dried, preserved, basically within sediment and rocks on the surface underneath where the lake used to be, you know, the pond, and and date that and say, okay, this is where the ice was at this time. It must have been damming the lake at this point on the slope. So it's all... It's all a complicated reconstruction process of where the ice was in the past.
1: Great. Okay, so have you encountered adversity throughout the course of your lifetime in relation to science, getting involved in science, or perhaps just your life goals that have brought you to this point?
0: At the University of Maine, I think the professors and the environment here, professors and peers, are really great and have helped me a lot with combining being able to do, a, you know, multiple majors and combining those. So they've been a support system. I think most of the adversity in pursuing this as a career has been within myself. And so, you know, as you come in from high school to college for the first time and you're trying to figure out what you want to do, that's always exciting and overwhelming. Um, and I think for me it was always important that, I keep pushing for that even if the picture isn't in my mind of who I want to be or how I'm going to get there. That doesn't matter as long as you keep working towards it. And so for me, once I was, you know, taking classes for a number of years in both studio art and earth science and learning a lot more about myself in both and how much I enjoyed both fields, you know, I wasn't sure how those would combine. I thought they went together well. I always did paintings when I did field work for my research. I tried to make paintings in my art classes. At times about environmental topics, but it's still, you know, it still is kind of scattered ideas and interests in my mind. And so it was for me always just sticking to those passions and not worrying yet about how they would evolve and how I would combine them because if um, I was just had a confidence that I tried to grow that if I kept working towards a career that I wanted, I could find that. And so It was just to keep pushing myself and challenging myself, trying to share my artwork with people in my science department, and then likewise kept pushing myself in my art classes to create artwork about environmental topics. And then finally, you know, researching, okay, what have people done throughout history to depict something in science, in art, because that's obviously been done many times before, and so that's inspiring to learn about. So just the adversity of kind of self Growth and where you're not doing something that is a set path, but it doesn't matter, you know. Right. <laughs> Taking right. on that
1: challenge, yeah. Yeah, and carving out your own path. Yeah. Um, which it seems like you've said about doing. Can you tell us a little bit about your plans going forward?
0: Yeah, so I just finished my master's, um, as I said, and um, in a couple of weeks I'm moving from Maine, where I've been for seven years, to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I chose. For a large part because of the really big and culturally diverse art community that I've seen and heard and read about there. I haven't been there yet, but I just wanted a place and a platform and a community to continue to push myself as an artist. And I saw that, that place and then that environment, you know, being near a diverse, like mountain system with diverse ecosystems as a really good starting place to do so to challenge myself Because it'll be scary to move out there without kind of a set plan or connection, kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, just go for it. But that's what I want to do. I want to um, start creating a lot more artwork, both on my own and in collaboration with other scientists about their research. And also to just learn more about the art world in general. I've been in the science world for solely for a couple of years now, which is great. But now I need to learn a little bit more about what it takes to be to be in the art world and to grow myself that way and so for the time being that's going to be my focus It's going to be making art you know hopefully working at a gallery or museum making connections in santa fe and just trying to grow grow my art career and at the same time focus on focus on the other portions of that career and so i really want to make sure i stay involved in research in some ways whether it's helping out with field work and i really want to stay involved in outreach and so you know, doing stuff with the the media and going into schools and talking with them and sharing with them my art and activities with my art, etc. But so lots of broad plans.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. Though I wish you so much good luck for the future. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about Jill's artwork or follow her on social media, where can you be found?
0: Uh, I post a lot of my artwork on my Instagram, and I'll especially be doing that more now. My Instagram name is just Joe Palto. I also have a website, joepalto.com, and I also have a Twitter and an Etsy, both under Glaciogenic Art, and so
1: all of those places you can find on my website, joepalto.com, which also has my email on it. Great, and we'll have links to that in the description. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Jill. Thank you, Marama. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Jill as much as I did, learning not only about the science she's undertaken to reconstruct past glacier extents in Antarctica, but also about how she's using art as this incredibly powerful tool to communicate climate science a broader public. It's been a hot minute since this episode was recorded back in the spring of 2018, so today we wanted to update you on the fact that Jill can be found back on the East Coast in Maine, keeping one foot in the science world and the other creating art to bring people closer to that science. Some of her more recent projects, which you can find out more about on her social media platforms, include a collaboration with the Northeast Ski Company, which brought her art to some skis, a feature on the front of Times Magazine, and a new project she's working on looking at how climate change affects plants in collaboration with academics in Sweden. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out our website at letsdosomethingbig.weebly.com or connect with us on Instagram at LDSBIG. Have a superbulous day. Content was produced and edited by Mahalia Dryak and Mariama Dryak. The cover art for the We Persist podcast is created by Emma Henry, and the music for today's episode is from Purple Planet Music.